So this morning we have the opportunity to get into our final message on Genesis chapters 1 to 11. We're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to look at one final genealogy as well as a story with which, again, I would imagine most of us are at least passingly familiar, and that being the account that we call the Tower of Babel. The reason we are stopping at chapter 11 and not continuing on into chapter 12 is because starting in chapter 12 in Genesis, there is an entirely new chapter for humanity. Chapters 1 through 11 essentially deals with the creation and kind of the settlement of mankind. And then starting in chapter 12, we have this entirely new chapter where we have the call of the Lord to Abram, who would become Abraham. And up until chapter 11, and including chapter 11, we essentially have a more or less united human race. We don't officially have Jew or Gentile. Nothing really separating man except for maybe geographic location or family lineage. And the main division that we've seen up until this point is so-and-so's line faithful to the Lord and so-and-so's line who chooses not to be. But starting with Abram, we get into God's specific covenant faithfulness to his people born from Abram. Through what we've already studied and what we're going to look at this morning, the groundwork has been laid for God's work in the Abrahamic narrative. And for us, Lord willing, our next sermon series that we will be getting into, not next week, but the week following, will move us from Genesis 1 to 11, which is a very foundational text, into the book of Judges. Now, if you look at a swing from Genesis 1 to 11 to Judges, it might seem like a little bit of a wild swing, but it's not quite as wild as one might think. Because as we talked about this as the elders, what we were hoping is that we could see in Genesis this bedrock truth and this bedrock principles that our faith is built on and what our whole creation hangs upon. Things like in the beginning, God the eternal self-existence of our Lord, or in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. The image of God as expressed in two genders, male and female. And we've had over and over again these foundational truths drilled down and pulled out of God's word here. And in Judges, what we're going to be getting into, Lord willing, it's going to show us what it looks like when mankind abandons that foundation. What it looks like when man refuses to build upon the foundation that God has given us. So, Like I said, before we get to Judges, we have one last passage, and by God's grace, it is my prayer that this passage would prove as meaningful to us as the last 17 weeks have in the past. Like I said, it's split into kind of two independent or interdependent parts. So I'd ask that you'd start by tr turning to Genesis chapter 10. And we're going to read that section today. That's Genesis chapter 10 in your pew Bibles. It's page 7. Um, and we're going to read just Genesis chapter 10, and then later on we'll read the second part of our passage. Genesis chapter 10. 
These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kidim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Reema, and Sabteca. The sons of Reema, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtalim, Pathrusim, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebuim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadarim, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sifar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from the nations that spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is God's word. So, that passage is what is often called the table of nations, the beginning of and the spreading of the people throughout the earth. Maybe you're asking why that is not getting its own dedicated message, but besides being a fairly straightforward genealogy, it has limited commentary within it, and what commentary is there directly corresponds to the Tower of Babel that we're going to get into in chapter 11. This account of the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, is concurrent with that Babel account. 
in chapter 11, because if you read through there, you'll hear these are the account of these sons and their nations and their languages. And as we get to in the Tower of Babel, people had spoken one common language. So we are reading this table of nations, and in the midst of these generations that are listed in that table of nations occurs this Tower of Babel. Here these generations that represent the beginning of our world, they are totally changed. And this time the change comes not by a flood nor by a curse, but by a new type of separation. If you take a look at this table of nations, there's just a couple things I want to point out before we get into the Tower of Babel proper. The first and perhaps the most obvious is that even just by the makeup of the passage, where the focus of the writing lies. Remember that this is Moses writing to his people. And it doesn't take much if you open your Bible and take a look at it. If you have an ESV like me, you have Japheth's line taking up a total of 53 words. Not a particularly large chunk. And then Ham and Shem, respectively, Ham gets 211 words. Shem gets 143. And in large part, the rest of the Old Testament is going to focus primarily on the sons of Ham and Shem. Japheth's line, likely contributing to our line as Gentiles, doesn't get a whole lot of airtime. But Ham's offspring continues Ham's legacy of wickedness, while Shem's follows the righteous trajectory left by their forebear. And yet all of these families are involved in the judgment level at Babel. But if you look at Ham's lineage, from his lineage come the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Canaanites. Are you hearing a who's who of the problem for God's people Israel? From that wicked line comes people that are the who's who of the thorns in Israel's side for the remainder of the Old Testament and beyond. The main thing that I want us to pull out of this genealogy, and I kind of guess by extension the rest of these genealogies that we see regularly in Genesis and cropping up again elsewhere throughout the Old and New Testament, these lists are more than just names on ancient roll calls. They are a trail. They are a line of breadcrumbs for the student of Scripture to follow. And by following these genealogies, those who are faithful and those who are familiar with God's commandments and laws can follow those trails of breadcrumbs backwards. Oftentimes, we read, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and so on, and our eyes kind of start to glaze over. If we're doing our daily scripture reading and we see a genealogy, we're like reading up to it, and then we kind of skip through the genealogy and pick back up at the end because this is a list of names that we don't understand and we don't really take the time to. But there's a reason why 
in passages like Luke 3 at the beginning of Christ's public ministry, Luke opens with a genealogy. As soon as Christ enters his public ministry, Luke says, okay, full stop, this is the lineage of Christ. Luke 3, 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, and then he starts this genealogy, beginning, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, and he goes on, and if, I'm not going to read all of it, but if I skip down to 35, it picks up kind of where we've been spending our time. 35, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, there's a name we recognize, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Not even taking into account the millennia we just cut out of that genealogy, we still catch some incredible pieces of the path of redemption that God has orchestrated and built according to his sovereign will. And all of these Old Testament genealogies, as far as we modern-day Gentiles are concerned, they find their ultimate meaning in Christ because it is in Christ we are made a part of the legacy of faith that is found in these records. So while it is easy for us to skim past these lists of hard-to-read, much less pronounced names from thousands of years ago, many of which we never really get any detail on, it's easy for us to skip past them, but I hope that even from just our time in Genesis 1 to 11, that you will begin to develop a new appreciation for the incredible legacy of faith that you have been made a part of in Christ and that God has left for us to see. Every piece of Scripture, no matter how obscure, was left for us by God, preserved for us by God for a purpose. And these genealogies are included in that. So I encourage you, don't skip them. Even if you don't choose to try and read them out loud, don't skip them. Because they're there for a reason. But we're going to transition into the Babel narrative. And like I said, that is concurrent with this table of nations. But I want you to see verse 25 of chapter 10. It says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided. We aren't given, at least in this passage, any identification of Peleg's family. But that torch is taken back up after the Babel narrative to identify Peleg as being the father of Abraham who became Abraham. This is significant because it appears that it was during Peleg's lifetime that this great division of the peoples occurred. And there is some, some argument over that, and that, so I might not camp on it too stubbornly, but it appears to be the case both because of this commentary note from Moses that it was during his lifetime the division of peoples occurred as well as the placement of his genealogy before and after the Babel event. You'll remember from Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And according to verse 32, 
of our passage, we can see that this was at least beginning to take place. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So they're commanded, fill the earth, and they start to spread. But as the sons of Noah and their families began to spread to the east, the whole earth had one language, the same words. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. One of the incredible benefits of preaching entire books or major portions of scripture in sequence is that if we take this passage in isolation, we might miss this. But reading this passage, having spent the last 17 weeks or so in Genesis, you recall any other situation in which people moved to the east and built a city. For that, you'd flip back to chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. What is the symbolism throughout Genesis 1 to 11 of moving eastward? Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden and sent east. Cain, when he killed his brother, went east. Now in the dispersion of the nations from the site of the ark's landing, people began to spread to the east, and going eastward symbolizes moving away from the presence of the Lord. And as they move eastward again, they begin to defy the will of God. Cain, when he was sent away, he was cursed to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And what did he do? As a fugitive and a wanderer, he built a city in defiance of God's command. And now these people are blessed with the commandment to multiply and fill the earth, and then they choose instead to settle in this land of Shinar to build a great city. And pulling again from this commentary that we have in the Table of Nations, this great city that is later identified as Babel, is very likely Babylon. It's also likely that it is under Nimrod that this tower was being constructed. In verses 8 and 9, we're told, Cush, father Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's an interesting choice of words that's used here to describe the one under whose rule apparently all of the languages of mankind is confused. It sounds almost like Nimrod, this forefather of all manner of problems for the Israelites. It almost sounds like he's being praised, doesn't it? Mighty man, mighty hunter before the Lord. But it says that he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. But we've heard that term mighty man before. You go back to pre-flood in Genesis chapter 6. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And in 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And if you fast forward to the affirmation that is made 
in the covenant with Noah, God says, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Nimrod is identified as this mighty man and a mighty hunter. And his greatness is based upon his might in battle, his ability to kill both man and beast. So rather than seeing this passage as building up this Nimrod, it seems better to view Nimrod in light of passages such as Psalm 66, which says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through on the river on foot, and did we re- there did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. And remember this chunk here. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. The greatness of man, especially any such greatness as what Nimrod has displayed here, is viewed with derision by the Lord. The Lord scoffs at these people. So that being said, I'd encourage you to, again, come back to our passage, and we're going to read from chapter 11. We're going to read through to the end of the Babel account, which is in verse 9. 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is the only, only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there from dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Again, this is God's word. I think in this passage, the incredible ability of mankind to forget is displayed very clearly. Noah, Ham, Canaan, Cush, Nimrod. Nimrod's great-grandfather. And think, many of us had the opportunity to meet our own great-grandparents. But it's not that far of a leap, and Noah's, or Nimrod's great-grandfather had experienced the total annihilation of all mankind and every land-dwelling thing in the great flood. He himself had come on the ark. And that judgment had come because of man's rampant wickedness and refusal to obey God. And now, just a few generations removed, we have humanity following in, falling into that same kind of disobedience. The same kind that motivated the flood. And if you were to look at 
chapter 11 with a set of Hebrew eyes, which I know we don't have. Not too many of us are fluent in biblical Hebrew. But if you were to look on it with Hebrew eyes, this is a beautiful piece of Hebrew literature. It has so many poetic and literary, literary elements that there was a lot of thought and planning into creating this passage. And it's designed to follow this cresting pattern of the story. You will have heard me talk about a chiasm before, and it's a literary device where the whole passage mirrors itself. It works its way up and then comes back down. And at that crest of the passage, we have the key feature, the primary point of the passage. And throughout the entire first half of this passage in chapter 11, we have this growing and building display of mankind's hubris, the God-rejecting pride of mankind. As the people build this tower, their own stated motivation for building this tower, they say this. This is not us reading into it. It says, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. They are declaring, let us make much of ourselves so we don't have to obey God's direction to fill the earth. Go fill the earth. Let's build a city and make a name for ourselves so we don't have to go do that. And they try to build this tower to make a name for themselves. And... A lot of times when we hear the Sunday school version of this, somewhere in the midst of building that tower, they're kind of cut off in the midst of building, and otherwise they would have built it all the way to heaven. Well, one, we have a pretty good understanding now today that there's something above the sky. We have the outer space, and we haven't, they weren't building it into outer space. And they built the tower, and they were continuing to build the city, But they'd built that tower with this idea of almost to breach into the heavens. They hadn't gotten into any different realm, but they had entered the territory of the gods in that we are making a name for ourselves. We are making gods of ourselves. God built this. Look what we built. And that is a temptation that is common to all of humanity from the very beginning of creation to today. Right back to Adam and Eve, what is their temptation? What are they tempted with in the garden? That they might become like God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in this titanic undertaking to build this massive city and this huge tower, this was another attempt to attain a measure of divinity. God can create, so can we. Look what we have created. This was to be an eternal monument to the capability and self-sufficiency of mankind. We can do it. But then look at God's response. The very center of our passage today in verse 5 The Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. They had built a tower beyond anything that 
people of the day could imagine. We have built the tallest, the biggest, the best tower, and God has to stoop. God comes down. We may find ourselves asking a question, if God is everywhere present, why the coming down? This is, God didn't need to stoop. It's an anthropomorphic description describing God in human terms. But within our passage here, that God stooping, it's a, it's a mocking term. It's a, ah, look what you built. But not in a nice way. It's having to stoop down. You have built this monument to the greatness of mankind, and God has to stoop even to see it. Great Nimrod in the sight of God. Mighty man, mighty hunter, built a mighty tower. There's this mocking tone that's going on here. For all of man's pride, man had failed to accomplish their goal to attain some matter of godhood. And also, remember we were talking earlier about Cain, as he was driven east after killing his brother, he was terrified at the idea of being dispersed away from his people. How could God send him away? This was a fate worse than death. And these descendants of Noah, too, were terrified at the unknown that lay before them. So rather than obey God's command to go and fill the earth, they would double down on their obstinate refusal. They're not just going to say, okay, we're just going to settle in this area instead. No, we're going to build a city here. We're going to build the biggest city you've ever seen with the biggest tower you've ever seen. We can deal with this ourselves. And all that comes to disastrous effect. God assesses the feeble efforts of these mortals at attaining some manner of divine stature, their attempts to resist his will and disobey his command, and determines to make an end of it. In verse 6 he says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Don't, again, mistake the tone here. Don't be confused. God is not afraid of what mankind is capable of. It's not, oh, well, if I leave them to their business, eventually they'll get there and they'll take over. Even in their greatest achievement, he still had to condescend. He had to come down to even acknowledge it. But remember the state of mankind pre-flood. Pre-flood, mankind was in a united state. They were all working with one language. And presumably in that united state, mankind had wholeheartedly, with one voice, determined to follow the wickedness of their hearts to the point that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mankind, as one, was able to get together and completely reject God. The problem here is not specifically what feats man can accomplish. God is not worried about what mankind is going to be able to do. He, they're not going to be able to affect God in any way. The problem is the same kind of thing that we have begun to experience 
today in our globalized society that mankind would, to the damnation of themselves, totally, totally and utterly cast off any dependence upon God. If they all work together, they are going to totally cast God off because what is their heart like? I've often said that one of the reasons why we see such rapid growth of faith and the church in situations and places where you see trial and tribulation and persecution running rampant, think of places like China or Nigeria where the church is actively and physically persecuted and killed on a regular basis, the reason why we see faith growing in places like that while faith stagnates in countries that live in relative ease, like say Canada, one of the differences is the importance of daily and legitimate dependence upon God. Oftentimes for even the necessities of life themselves. In the West, many people just don't see a need for God's provision. In their minds, well, I can just take care of myself. I don't need to depend on God for where my next meal is coming from. I can run down to the store and I can buy it and I can do it. Is this attitude sounding familiar to our story? And all of us know the rest of the Babel story. God comes down and confuses the languages of these people and in doing so, they then must disperse over the earth. As I was reading and studying this, something I never considered is that like the rainbow, which reminded us both of mankind's rebellion resulting in the flood as well as God's grace that he promised he would never again flood the earth, Dr. Ross Allen said in his commentary on this passage, the present number of languages that form national barriers are themselves a monument to sin. The fact that we all speak different languages of origin is itself a monument to sin because the people have refused to follow God. God's earthly judgment here, as it so often is, is a combination of punitive and protective and restorative. Mankind is being protected from themselves while also being penalized for their disobedience. In the confusion of language, God protects mankind from ever again wholeheartedly uniting in rebellion, at least in mutual rebellion. And he also is setting the stage for the restoration of mankind through the promised seed, which would eventually come through Abram. And as we can see here, all that the people at Babel were trying to accomplish, building this city, making a name for themselves, avoiding being dispersed, God's will is still accomplished. God commanded his people to go into all the earth, bearing forth his image into all creation, and as hard as mankind would kick against the goads, more obstinate than any mule, mankind is dispersed from there over the face of all the earth. We're going to and recognize they did this, they accomplished this, they built this city and this tower in their unified one-language state. So, the fact that they were unified was no threat to God, but God knew that if they continued, 
they would continue to grow in their wickedness. They would, as one people, grow in their desire to reject God. Brothers and sisters, today's passage is an example to be held up to all of humanity as to what happens when mankind refuses to acknowledge God and obey his commandments. We are four generations or so removed from the flood of the entire earth here. And they have utterly refused to obey what God has commanded them to do. Have decided to build their own city, build their own tower. Anybody who spent any amount of time in the business world or gone to any one of the business or leadership type seminars that is so popular in our world, read a self-help book, they'll be familiar with the kind of rhetoric that's out there. One of the ones that I've been seeing around a lot is by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the wrestler and the actor. Success at anything will always come down to this, focus and effort, and we control both. Dan Waldschmidt, he's a business strategist. The only thing standing between you and outrageous success is continuous progress. Mankind, in his sinful condition, each one of us, in our sinful condition, is inclined to depend only upon ourselves. It's numero uno. Maybe I'll gather some people around me, but I gather them around me so I can accomplish, use them to accomplish my goals. This is about me. We are still inclined to reject God's authority and his direction. But God still, in his grace, pursues and guides and directs us, often in spite of ourselves. Jesus Christ, when he came, he displayed a character that was the exact opposite to what we would expect from someone of the human orientation. Jesus Christ, God made flesh, truly God and truly man, he perfectly accomplished the will of the Father. He perfectly obeyed every one of God's commandments and his laws. He came to earth and became a servant. I mean, the obvious application for us is that we follow the example of Christ. That's why we pray in the vast majority of our prayers that we would become like Christ, that we would be made like Christ, that God would sanctify us, bringing us into the likeness of Christ. Because those worldly mantras of just do what feels right and be a good person and follow your heart is garbage. Because if you follow your heart, if you do what feels right to you, if you just be what you define as a good person, you're, all you're doing is paving your own road to hell. Because you cannot do anything to save you. Our own heart, our own affections, our own righteousness will all be just as self-serving, just as contrary to God's commandments as were the actions of those at Babel. The flip side of that is, since we are called to be holy 
as God is holy, if we can't accomplish our own righteousness, then we must depend on the righteousness of another, and that being the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is given to us if we trust in him, if we obey him. Our salvation depends upon our humiliation. If our aim is to make much of ourselves, if our first goal is, as we see in this passage, to make our name great or to accomplish first our personal aims, then we cannot truthfully claim that Christ is the only Lord of our lives. If I'm going about taking care of me and me first, then who is the focus of my life? That is not to say we shouldn't have goals. That's not to say we shouldn't have directions. That's not to say we shouldn't build tall towers or nice cities. But all of our will, all of what we want, all of everything about us becomes subservient to someone else. Christ, God, is not an accessory to be added to our lives. He is the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Almighty, and he is not going to take second place to you or to anything else in your life. The prophet Micah asks, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Our Lord is a jealous God and jealous for the hearts of his people, and we must humble ourselves, content, and more than content, joyful to take second place in our own lives. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Our old selves were crucified with him. We must daily deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. To live the life of faith is to reject the pride, the disobedience, and the idolatry of the people of Babel. The people of Babel who said, let us make a name for ourselves. We are created in the image of who? We are created in the image of God. We are created for the purpose of glorifying the name of who? Not the name of Josh. Not the name of any one of you. We are created for the purpose to glorify the name of God by bearing forth the image of God created in us. We are not going to make a name for ourselves. We are not going to, if we are in faith, going to reject the command of God to go and bear forth his image into creation. Instead, we are going to walk humbly with our God. And a lot of times we take a look at that and we kind of try and define what humility is, but first and foremost, to walk humbly with our God is to say His will, what He wants, what He has commanded comes first. And as we walk in His will, in His commandments, it'll be our glory to see that He is doing things in our lives. He is caring for us. He is providing for us. We may not ever become the billionaires that we wanted to be. We may not ever want win the lottery that we thought we might, but God will provide for his people and will care for his people, and eternally we will be in 
far better state than if we had tried to accomplish any of this on our own. We must submit our lives to Christ and obey the commands of the Lord in the power that is given to us by God's Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us as people from many nations. If you work through Elk Point Baptist Church, God, you know that we are a people who come from a variety of languages, a variety of peoples, a variety of places. But Lord, let us be reminded that these different languages that we speak are, in a way, a monument to the fact that we have, as a people, as the human race, rejected you. Lord, may we, as your people, rally to you and around you. May we, as your people, learn to walk in a way that is humbled before you, that we would not seek our own good, that we would not seek to make a name for ourselves, that we would seek to glorify your name above any other name, including our name. And Lord, we confess that we have set up idols in our hearts and our lives. Idols of industry, idols of the things that we hold most dear, idols of family, idols of success. And Lord, we ask that whatever idol it is that we have set up in our own hearts and our own lives, whatever it is that we have allowed to come between us and you that we have placed before you in our own hearts, that you would tear it down by the work of your Holy Spirit. That even as you tore down the idol of this tower and the city that was ongoing in the hearts of the people of Babel, that you would tear it down in our own hearts and our own lives, that you would act upon us and affect us, that we would not, to our own damnation, choose our own glory over yours. And Lord, we thank you that even though all those years ago you dispersed the people of the earth, that you separated them into tribes and tongues by scrambling their languages, O oh Lord, that you have again united mankind, that all of those who would follow you, regardless of tribe, tongue, nation, place of origin, Lord, that all who would follow you, any who would confess your name and believe in the heart, their hearts that you have raised your son Jesus from the dead, that we all would be united into a new nation, a new people, and that you have given us your word as the basis of our union as Christians, as followers of your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the time that we have had in Genesis 1 through 11, and we pray that we would not abandon these chapters, but that we would come back to them again and again and be fed by the truths that are found there, and that we would not give up on any passage of Scripture, but throughout your entire word, that we might be strengthened and equipped and brought into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. That one day we might 
as your people gather around your throne as every tribe and tongue and nation singing glory to you and to the Lamb who was slain. And that we might be united again in the new heavens and the new earth as one people, as you are a God and we are your people. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you together here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we will close our service here this morning. With the blessing of the psalmist, we go forth this morning. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. We will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So church, go and refuse to forget or ignore God's commandments and his faithfulness. And if you would know his commandments, you must know his word. Go and spend time in his word that his commandment might be written upon your heart. And go and confound the wisdom of this world by humbling yourself before God. Rather than doing what our world does and trying to make a name for yourself, confound this world by humbling yourself before God. And if you do so, for the glory of God, you will find yourself to be exalted by God in eternity.